Good morning. I'm going to be reading from 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as taught you about abide in him. This is God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Let's pray together. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to 1 John 2. And uh, let's pray and ask God to meet us uh, during this time. Gracious God, uh, this is your word, and you are a good, good father. And so, Lord, would it please you this morning to reveal yourself to us, to speak uh, to our hearts, Lord. We pray that your spirit would take your word and bury it deep uh, into us, Lord, that we might know you and love you and trust you and walk with you. And so, Lord, open our eyes today. Uh, Give us ears to hear you and change our hearts in the process. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the, the first verse of our passage this morning, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Now, depending on the kind of books or movies that stoke your imagination, uh, the opening line of that passage uh, might sound like the plot for the next apocalyptic Hollywood blockbuster, or it might be you know, fodder for conspiracy theorists and prognosticators uh, trying to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, or you may hear that line and simply think, I don't know what the last hour is, but I'm pretty sure I don't want to be around when it happens. Um, our culture is a little obsessed with the end of the world. Uh, one author writes that, Pop culture has shown us a million ways the world could end. 
There are slow-moving viral outbreaks, zombie takeovers, nuclear wars and alien invasions and robot mutinies and environmental cataclysms. And, and of course, when you add a, a, a religious element into that mix, uh, you get all sorts of wild speculation about, you know, who is the Antichrist, when will Jesus come back, and so on. Now, make no mistake, the Bible is clear that this present age will come to a close. The very last line of the previous passage, John says in verse 17, that the world is passing away along with its desires. So there is an end coming. Scripture is clear about that. Uh, But our passage this morning is going to, I, I hope, help bring some clarity amid the craziness of some of the ideas that our imaginations can get running with uh, when we think about the end of the world, uh, as we put it. And I think it's going to do that in two significant ways. First, John clarifies for us the primary nature of the battle to come. So there is, you know, you, you read the end of Revelation, you read much of what John and, and Paul and others wrote, there is a sense in which there is some great uh, engagement, conflict at the end. But John helps us understand the primary nature of that battle, that before the enemy declares an all-out war, he will begin a campaign of deception. That's the primary nature. In other words... You know, if you're going to plot to overthrow a country and destroy its way of life, if you simply declare war, then they're going to know what you're trying to do. And so before you do that, you send in spies. You send in people to begin a campaign of deception, to lead others astray. That's the enemy's primary tactic. Uh, John tells us in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And that's similar to what Jesus says about the end. If you look back to Matthew 24, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's a campaign of deception. It's the same thing we see in Revelation uh, 13, uh, with the uh, the beast and the false prophet there. By the signs that the false prophet's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So the great battle, whatever we can say about the end, the great battle uh, that will come will not begin with bullets and bombs, but with words. The enemy's primary tactic is deception. That's the first thing John is going to help us clarify. The second thing that he helps us understand about this end time uh, conflict is that it's not merely something future. It's already present. It has begun and will continue to rage until Christ returns. To put it more bluntly, according to John, we are living today in the end times. This is the last Hour, he says. Now, if your understanding of whatever the phrase end time means is exclusively future, maybe, 
you know, a, a seven-year period that the church will somehow be spared from, then John's words will come as somewhat of a shock. This is the last hour. But it's important to let the New Testament tell us what it means by phrases like the end of the age or the last times or the last hour. And when we look at how the authors of the New Testament use those terms, we find that they're talking about a time period that has already begun in every use. Uh, More specifically, they're talking about a season of history that began with Christ's death and resurrection and the outpouring of his spirit at Pentecost and will be brought to completion when he returns in the end, the restoration of all things. And so it's this time between the first and second comings of Christ. That's what the New Testament authors mean when they use the phrase the end of the age or these last days and so on. And so there is an end coming. It's not here in full, but that end has broken into the present through Christ. Such that we already enjoy some of the promised blessings that we look forward to in the end. The language of eternal life. How can John, how can Jesus say that we have eternal life already if we're not yet in heaven? It's because the end has broken into the present through Christ. How can we say that we are declared not guilty of our sin? We are justified by faith in Christ, even though we haven't stood before the judgment throne at the end yet to receive that final verdict. That verdict that we will receive in the end has come forward into the present through faith in Christ. And so the end has broken into the present. But that also means then that the enemy's final assault has also broken into the present. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So the battle waiting for the end has already begun. There are already spies on the ground inside and outside the church seeking to lead astray. So what does that mean for us today? It means that when we think about the end It's not something that we just kind of sit back and say, well, I probably won't be around when it happens anyway, so I don't have to worry about it. Rather, we need to heed John's warning here and be on our guard against deception now. That's what it means. And if you've been with us through 1 John, we're going through the letters of John uh, this winter and spring Uh, you won't be surprised to hear the urgency or the seriousness in John's tone. Uh, He has spent much of the book kind of uh, advocating and warning his readers uh, and exhorting them about their relationship with God. Not because they don't have a relationship with God, but because they do have one. It's anchored in Christ, and he doesn't want anything to mess that up. He doesn't want anything to come along and ruin that. And there are some who had at one point been part of this church he's writing to and have since left it who are seeking to lead this congregation astray. And so John is writing to warn them against that. Some who want to lead the the congregation astray by offering a different way to know God intimately, a way other than through Jesus. And he's alluded to these false teachers before, but this passage is where he begins to really speak directly about the problem. What's going on such that John is is adamant and urgent in writing this letter? 
And what he has to say about these false teachers is not particularly nice. Unless you think it's nice to call somebody an antichrist. I wouldn't recommend trying that. Uh, But John's not playing games. He's not playing games. And neither should we when it comes to the kind of deception that seeks to lead people away from Jesus. That's what's at stake in this letter. And that's what's still at stake today. And so John begins by helping us first understand the nature of deception. What is it that they're trying to do? And then second, by showing us the protection that God has already given us to guard against being deceived. That God has already given us a protection against that deception. So we'll start by looking at the nature of deception, the agenda of the Antichrist. Now, we should probably say something about that word, though. It's the kind of word that, you know, uh, creates all sorts of different reactions. Uh, when we hear that word, most of us probably think, uh, if we're not thinking of some sort of science fiction thriller, if we're thinking about it in religious uh, categories, we probably think of some singular diabolical figure who will play the key role in leading the world astray at the end. And the Bible does talk about that kind of figure. Uh, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. Or John uh, uses the imagery of a beast to describe him in Revelation 13. So there is that kind of figure, this future figure, uh, that will play some sort of key role in deceiving the nations at the end. However, I would not recommend combing through the newspapers or the Reddit feeds to try and figure out who he is. Uh, every generation has had its list, you know, of, of people, and every subsequent generation has updated that list for their own day. Um, the Lord will make it clear in the end. You don't need to worry about that one. But we should note that while there is this singular figure coming in the end, his representatives are alive and well in every age, whether they realize it or not. Antichrist is coming, but so now many antichrists have come, advancing his agenda of deceit. So so like spies, they're he sought to embed them into communities of faith. You know, Paul, Jesus, others warned the church about wolves uh, within the flock, wolves among sheep. But in John's case here, in this letter, these false teachers have recently been exposed. He tells us in verse 19 that they had been part of the church he's writing to, but they left that community because they weren't truly part of that community. They had been exposed. Think of, I don't know if you saw this in the news a few years ago, but the Russian spy ring that was exposed in America in 2010, two of whom were living next door in Cambridge. It's like, wait a second, the Cold War's over. But yeah, uh, there it was. They were faking it. They didn't really belong here. And they were subsequently exposed. And so these false teachers, if they had truly been part of the community John's writing to, they would have abided with that congregation. They would have been part of it and would have grown and remained with it, but so that it would become clear that they didn't really belong, uh, they were somehow put out or let out or left. We don't know exactly how or why, but we do know that they're no longer there. 
But unlike the case of the, the recent Russian spies who were deported and, and therefore whose influence was neutralized, these false teachers were still very much a threat to this church. And what was that threat? What is the nature of their deception? Well, we can guess at it simply by thinking about the word antichrist. If you are anti-something, you are against that thing. They were against Christ. And John tells us exactly what he means by that in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So what made these false teachers uh, so dangerous uh, was nothing less than their rejection of Jesus and their attempt to get others to follow suit. That was the nature of their deception. But keep in mind, they did not do this by trying to recruit uh, church members into some satanic cult. That wasn't their tactic. Uh, the Russian spies living in Cambridge didn't hold communist parties and toast to Mother Russia. They went to Harvard. They had jobs here. They looked and spoke and dressed like their neighbors. And so it was with the false teachers in John's day. Their deception was subtle. They spoke the language of the church. And they spoke about the dreams of the church. They appealed to their desire to know God intimately. They simply offered a way to do that other than through Jesus. That was their tactic. And that tactic is equally dangerous in every generation of offering something that sounds good. I want to know God more. You bet. Okay, we'll try this out. And it's a way that leads us uh, away from Christ. It's especially dangerous when we find ourselves um, at a low point in our walk, spiritually speaking. And when we find ourselves hurting or frustrated in our relationship with God or disenchanted, feeling distant. I think all of us at some point wonder in our relationship with God, as we look at, as we think about how our hearts feel or we look at what's going on in our lives and we're, we ask ourselves, am I missing something? Did, did, did I overlook something? Is there something else I'm supposed to get here? We plateau in our faith or we feel dry spiritually and then someone or some book or something comes along promising that they can help us break through to the next level that they've got the key that's going to unlock that that true intimacy we've been looking for, but that key just happens to have nothing to do with Christ. That's the kind of threat. Maybe it's a it's a an old teaching from the past, you know, something that we supposedly forgot or missed along the way, a certain religious practice or tradition that if we just readopt that, that's going to unlock intimacy with God. I'll really know God now if I just do this thing. Uh, maybe it's a new teaching from above. Someone comes along with a, a new heavenly revelation uh, by some new prophet, new information about God, previously unknown, and you can only get it if you buy this book or follow this leader or whatever. That's uh, the stuff that new religions and even cults are born out of. Or maybe it's a new way to hear directly from God. You feel dry in your relationship with God. 
Uh, there's a new kind of mysticism where, where you can just kind of circumvent the Bible and just go straight to God. You know, uh, despite the fact that the Spirit has already gone to great lengths to speak to His people through giving us the Word, you don't need that. You can ignore that. You can just listen straight to God, and He'll tell you uh, what He wants you to know. It's amazing, one, how popular that is, and two, how often the voice people hear sounds like a modern therapist and how little it sounds like the incarnate Christ. And so we just, you know, that's, that's, we need this new teaching from above. Or maybe we need a new teaching from below. Uh, academic discoveries that we've figured out that, that, have, that can cure us of some of these uh, outdated superstitions and replace them with the new hope of, of modern progress. Or teachers who kind of lower our gaze from heaven and redirect it to this life and what this world can give us, what you can get out of, out of today. The promise of health and wealth and prosperity, your best life now. Maybe it's a, a new teaching from within. You know, we've got above, below. What about looking inside? Maybe that's what I'm missing. I just need to learn to follow my own heart and, and, find the answers from within, chart my own course, or even a new teaching from outside, from without, uh, to borrow elements from other religions and figure out how to fit them into Christianity, blend them together. Maybe, you know, if this works for them, maybe a little bit of this and a little bit of that will help me in my faith here. But what we have to realize is that with each alternative teaching that comes along, comes an alternative Messiah, an antichrist, a substitute savior. If it's not the message of the gospel being held out, then it's offering a substitute savior. The goal of every spy is to convert your allegiance without you even realizing it. And so, in order to get you to ignore Christ, you've got to offer something up that sounds better than him, that looks better, easier. For, the, for religious tradition, that the Savior becomes the religious institution. If I keep the rules of the church, I'll be in good with God. Well, that's easy. I can manage that. For, uh, for new religions or, or, or even cults, it's the religious guru the new prophet, the new cult leader, who often, you know, it's amazing how often they claim within their new religion to have some relationship to or secret knowledge of Christ having returned. And so you follow their words, not the scripture, and if you uh, deny their words, then, then you're denying God. For modernism, the Savior is human progress, what we can do with our own resolve. For the prosperity gospel, the Savior is money. All you need is more money, and if you really had faith in God, He would give you more money. For postmodern relativism, or, or the kind of expressive individualism, the you-do-you you kind of chart-your-own-course spirituality, you become your own Savior. For religious syncretism, the, the blending of religions... You end up with some sort of Picasso savior that, 
that doesn't really truly represent any of the religions it's drawing from. Think of, of uh, Toshlan in, in the Narnia series. You've got Tosh and Aslan, mix them together. We've got this new savior who isn't true to either of them. But for all of those alternative teachings, what ultimately makes them so dangerous and so damning is that they deny Christ. They are a substitute for Christ. That was the nature of deception in John's day, and that's what's wrong with false teaching in every day. That's what makes it false. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Son and the Father. Because the reality is, you cannot claim relationship with the Father if you do not seek him through the Son. You cannot claim to have an inside track, intimacy with God, a relationship with the Father, if you do not seek him through his eternal Son, Jesus. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And that's because only Jesus accomplishes the will of the Father in giving his life to save us from our sins. There's no other Savior who does that. No other Savior was there with God in the beginning, co-designing God's plan of redemption. No other Savior came and shed his righteous blood on your behalf to take away your sin. And no other Savior was sent by God to do so. Only Jesus. John tells us in chapter 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So you can't claim to honor and love God by neglecting and rejecting that which is most precious to Him, His Son. You just can't do it. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so, the surest way to recognize a false teaching is to ask, what are they doing with Jesus? What are they doing with Jesus? Is he the hero? Is he the Savior? Or has something else taken his place? And that's the point that John is going to make through the rest of this passage as he kind of transitions from warning them about the nature of deception to reminding them of the protection God's already given them against that deception. The Spirit and the Word. And so there are two safeguards John tells us about. Two tools for detecting the, the spy's presence in our midst. The Spirit and the Word. And John begins and ends by talking about the Spirit. Verse, he, he refers to it in terms of the anointing that we have received. In verses 20 and 27. And in between those two places, he points us to the Word of the Gospel that we've had from the beginning. And it's there that I want to start. The safeguard of God's Word in verses 24 and 25. So look, look at those verses with me, if you will. This is our first protection against the enemy's deception. 
holding fast to the truth of the gospel. Simply holding fast to the truth of the gospel. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. What, what's John talking about there? Well, it's the same message he started talking about in the beginning of the book. The gospel message of Christ. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he has made to us, eternal life. You want to know God. You want eternal life with God. Let the gospel message, let the truth of the gospel abide in you. Now, John's not saying anything new here by pointing this out. In fact, that's kind of his point. You're not going to find eternal life in some new teaching. The message that he preached in the gospel of John the message that this church believed when they began their relationship with Christ is the message they need to continue believing as they walk with Christ and grow with Christ. They need to continue in the word of truth. God has made himself known to us through his word, through the scriptures. So the message of the apostles inspired by God, handed down for every generation, if you let that word abide in you, That is a safeguard. If you know the truth, think of it this way. If you know the truth, well, it's a lot easier to recognize a lie when you see it. And, And that's kind of the point. Let that word ruminate in your minds and your hearts. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that, uh, I always invite you to open your Bibles whenever I preach. It's not my word that you need. It's God's word, and I want you to see that for yourself. I don't want you just to take my word for it that the Bible says this. I want you to see it yourself. I want Bibles in hands, because it's God's word that you need. But then second, I expect you to hold me accountable to preaching the truth. So if I'm saying something that's not in there, you need to say something about that. We need to have a conversation. I need to hear from you. It doesn't mean we'll always, everybody always agrees on every detail and so on. But, but our standard of truth is God's word. This is, this is what we go to. This is what we need to continually be reforming and refashioning our minds and our hearts with, the word of God. That also means, though, that we need to spend time in God's word, not just on Sunday mornings. So one of my former pastors used to say, you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. If I want the Bible to shape my life, I have to spend time in it. I need to know it. We won't learn to recognize the truth if you don't spend time in the truth. Uh, and, you know, that can take all sorts of shapes. You know, for you, maybe it's a few minutes in the morning or over lunchtime, uh, at night. It doesn't really matter when you read the Bible and pray. And it honestly doesn't even matter how long you do it. What matters is that you do it in a regular and meaningful way such that this book shapes your life. That's the point. Because in spending time in the truth, we do that not just so we can have information, but so that we can be changed. Because the truth that we encounter in the Scriptures is not just facts, It's a person. It is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
He makes himself known to us through his word. So if you want to know God, listen to him. Spend time with him in his word and in prayer. Let the word of God abide in you. Let the message of the gospel abide in your heart. And that will safeguard you against temptation. That's one of the safeguards. But there's a second one that John mentions as well. And this is what he calls our anointing in verse 20 and 27. So look at verse 20 with me. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. So in contrast to these false teachers, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So what does he mean when he says you have been anointed by the Holy One? What is this anointing that he's talking about? Well, if we look throughout the Bible at how this phrase anointing is often used, it's pretty clear here that what John is talking about is receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, You think of Jesus was anointed with the Spirit at his baptism. That was the language that that Acts uses to describe it. Or you think even of, of David, when he was anointed, that was when the Spirit of God came upon him. And so as we turn from sin and place our faith in Christ, God anoints us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us new life and fills us with his presence. We call that the indwelling of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in our lives, in our hearts. That's what he's talking about when he talks about this anointed. You have the Spirit of God. Same thing Paul talks about in Romans 8. There's no evidence here in John that he's talking about some sort of extra thing or second blessing. Uh, He's talking about simply the fact that in Christ we receive the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Spirit is to lead us in all truth. Think of John 14, 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So John is reminding them that, that you know God, you have, you have relationship with him because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on you and he leads you in truth. He leads you in truth. You've been anointed by the Holy One. You all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know it, but because you do. And the Spirit is that sign and seal and mark and an indwelling presence that leads you in that truth. He says the same thing in verse 27. Again, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him, from God, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, Abide in him. Abide in Christ. Again, John's telling him, you guys already know the truth. I'm not writing you because you haven't figured it out yet. Follow the lead of the Spirit in your lives. You do not need these other teachers or their new teaching to know God better. You're not missing out on something by trusting the gospel and holding fast to Christ. The Spirit 
is teaching you that. And if you follow the lead of the Spirit, where does he point us? At the end of verse 27. What is it that the Spirit has taught us? To abide in Christ. The ministry of the Spirit is at work in us to point us to Jesus. And so John brings us full circle back to the same point he brings us to in almost every section of this letter. To the sufficiency of Christ and his gospel for an intimate relationship with God. That's where he keeps going. The message you believed in the beginning, it's still true and it's still powerful and it's still enough. Don't be deceived to move on from it or add to it. You don't need, you can't improve upon Christ. The last hour is here. The enemy's servants, his spies abound. But if you want to know God, look no further than Christ. If you want to grow in relationship with God, abide in Christ. You can't improve upon him. You can't replace him. But you can make your home in him. You can abide in him. Abide in his love through faith and obedience, and holiness. And in doing so, what John is going to prove to us again and again is that you can have assurance that your relationship with God is real when you abide in Christ. He, he writes toward the end of the letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't settle for substitutes. Don't be deceived. Abide in Christ. Our intimacy is guarded by the Spirit and is anchored and grounded in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your gospel. Thank you that you did not come to us and say, here's all the ways you've messed up. Now figure out how to fix it. Uh, you did not come to us and say, I've, I've come halfway. Now I need you to come the rest of the way. You came to us in humility and love by sending your son to be for us what we failed to be, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And in his life and resurrection, his life, death, and resurrection to secure for us the intimate relationship we were made for but could never have attained. And that what Christ has done was enough, is enough, and will always be enough. Lord, let us never forget that. Guard us from wanting to move on from that or away from that. Anchor us in your Son. And as we abide in Christ, would you fill our hearts more and more with your Spirit to know you and love you and walk with you and serve you. Give us confidence in our Savior, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.